everybody. This is Chaubert. Chaubert back at the Chaubert Show. I'm really excited to have our next guest, who I'm fortunate enough to call a friend as well, Natasha Picor, um, who's a product uh, guru in, in Silicon Valley and um, has been around Southern California and Washington. But um, Natasha, thanks for coming on my show. And why don't you kind of uh, do an introduction about who you are and your background and um, we'd love to uh, get, get this going. Yeah. Hi. Good to, good to chat with you, Shaber. Um, uh, I'm Natasha. I'm currently a product product leader and advisor um, and working on a number of uh, Web3, NFT, and DeFi projects. Um, I've spent you know most of my career working in technology in some sense, um, and that's spanned across um, you know leading platform at Yelp, working in technology consulting, venture capital, um, some time at Amazon leading um, a portion of the Prime Now business, and um, and then uh, more recently uh, as VP product at Ease, which is the largest cannabis e-commerce platform in the world, at least at the time. I'm not sure what the current rankings are, but hmm. one of the biggest cannabis platforms for sure. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, pretty exciting times, Ease, when it came about. Uh, really, in my opinion, the market leader it was the billboards everywhere in San Francisco. Um, and to even have the opportunity to get uh, weed at the door was pretty amazing. I remember a funny story. My buddy and I uh, were in the Hayden Ashbury having dinner. And one, you know, that after dinner, we came outside and some guy on a skateboard was just like, Uber Dank. Uber Dink. and my buddy fell for it. He's like, he's gonna talk to him. And I was like, oh man. Uh, but that, I was like, man, from that moment, because like basically on demand weed, the guy's on a skateboard saying, I'm Uber for weed. Uh, and, and then here's Ease that actually became a platform over time. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's pretty amazing. Um, like how, and, it, and it's very persevering because California and every all these states. And I'll go into details, but I'd love to hear just uh, quickly about like where you born, uh, like your background, uh, where we raised, and how how all that kind of encompassed. Yeah. What yeah, yeah. led you your you know getting into tech? Was it like a passion of yours, your dreams? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so I was born in Miami and um, moved over to um, uh, California when I was five, so pretty early on in life, and spent most of my youth in Southern California. Um, my, my mom is a, an immigrant from Brazil, um, Japanese descent, but born and raised in Brazil. Um, and so she was kind of new to this country. My dad was, um, uh, is from the Midwest. Um, but both of my parents, uh, you know, started going to college while I was in, uh, elementary school. And so, um, it, it was kind of cool to see my parents through a formative era in their lives. And, um, I think like their, um, careers changed drastically from when I was, you know, quite young to, to now. Um, and my dad studied engineering, which is what, you know, I think gave me the inspiration to study engineering myself. Hmm. Uh, I was, uh, did you go to school then for engineering? Yeah. Yeah, I went to school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for for undergrad. Um, ended up doing my master's in business later at Duke, but um, 
Nice. Yeah, my engineering degree was there, which is a, a you know, it's a, an awesome engineering program, very hands-on. Yeah. Um, and I think I probably wouldn't have thought to to study it, but my my dad had such a good experience in engineering, and I had pretty similar strengths to his, which is like you know math and science. I was never a strong creative writer or anything, so it felt like um, a good option. Though I always considered something in liberal arts as well. It just seemed um, uh, less of my strong suit, and there was maybe like less of a clear path on what you do next if you study something in arts. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a challenging thing. I think there's there's a saying, obviously, in Silicon Valley where focus on what you're really good at and double down. Uh, it, even in the educational level here in America, uh, I think it's dynamically changing. Uh, but in the context of, uh, I call it post-World you know, World War II manufacturing lifestyle, where you get in, you learn these type of skill sets, you get out and work nine to five, typically, um, you're very linear. Uh, I think people's, in my opinion, people have up to three really good skill sets. The challenge is how do you break that out? I think nowadays it's possible if you could really uh, manage your time well to do so, or you just balance yourself with the lifestyle you can. Um, but that's interesting that you got into like engineering. Did you like kind of, were you hacking things? Were you coding early on? Did you, uh, you know, just follow your dad and, and he let you like play along on the computer? Yeah. Uh, like what was that's very cool. I, I wish I was hacking more. I really, truly wish I <laughs> I, I was earlier on. I, I did yeah. build a website. I must have been probably a GeoCities website now in hindsight, uh, in elementary school. Um, as part of like the, it was like an extracurricular gifted pr- program. We had to um, do some sort of um, math and science project. Um, but aside from that, I didn't get into um like computer programming um very early i my dad was a biomedical engineer and so i was very much exposed to what he was working on we'd work through sort of like technical problems he was dealing with at work mm-hmm. um and kind of like problem solve together and work through the options which you know i, I was really lucky to get um sort of exposure to that early on um and you know my my dad yeah. i think loves to give lessons. So even as a kid, we'd be um, turning, you know, a tight curve on the freeway. And my dad'd be like, do you feel the force that's pulling you inwards? And, you know, we'd learn about, you know, centripetal, centripetal forces or yeah. um, <laughs> different that forces. Talk right there. You know, made it a lot easier for me when, when I was studying a lot of, um, you know, more challenging uh science and, and math subjects. And so, yeah. yeah, I think it was just, I thought that way early on, probably, you know, largely due to you know, what my dad exposed me to. Um, and then yeah. I, I studied engineering. I mean, it was, it was, I think it was more just because what I knew rather than at the time having any, um, strong pull towards engineering in particular, I, I mean, actually how, how, how kind of like hands off I was. <laughs> Cal Poly is a very hands on program. And I, I remember getting there and there was a course where you had to take apart and put back together an engine, which now if oh. someone gave me exposure to, I'd be like super excited to, <laughs> to do it. And at the time I was like, 
you know, kind of turned up my nose to applied, applied engineering. I just wanted to do things on, um, sort of, uh, more theoretical work. Um, is that what led to MBA school then? <laughs> um, probably. Yeah, probably yeah. I wasn't really drawn that line, but okay. yeah, I mean, so during, during college, I did a number of internships with different manufacturing engineering companies. So like Parker, uh, Parker Aerospace, and uh, uh, there was one other uh, uh, Thompson company. Um, and liked it, but I think I was really afraid that I'd get out of school and every day would be the same and I'd have just too predictable of a life. And so quite honestly, I, I, I saw my friends who graduated from, um, from my school who, who seemed to have a good, <laughs> like a fun, um, challenging lifestyle or challenging career, but a fun lifestyle. And uh, the consultants seemed to be living it up. And so I was like, well, maybe I can just do that. And so I had a friend put my resume into the, the pile for the career fair at, at Deloitte and then um, got only interviewed there pretty much because I was doing an internship, um, a six month internship at the time and got the job nice. and, um, and joined. And, you know, it really was a great first job because I met a ton of smart people, a bunch of amazing people was exposed to a lot of different projects. Arguably yeah. my first exposure to product management was within technology consulting and so it used a lot of the engineering skill sets, sort of problem solving, math, all of that, and the way I think an engineer approaches solving problems, um, but also didn't require me to do the same thing every day or take apart and put back together engines. Um, a lot yeah. of it was much more um, strategic and theoretical, um, and then also more um computer related uh, or software related work rather than mm. than mechanical or hardware that's actually pretty fascinating i do have uh speaking of like living it up in consultants it's, it's very true they do uh <laughs> they're a lot of fun and um it's it's intriguing that you brought up the fact that you learned product management um from the consulting angle where, where did you actually uh go to deloitte was it in silicon valley at that point or were you still um, somewhere away um, but some working on like technical systems on certain, what, what kind of industries were you focused on? I was at a large, most of my time there was at a large healthcare provider. Okay. Um, and I was designing reporting mm -hmm. analytics tools for them. And so it, we, at the time I didn't know it was called product management, but effectively sure. it was scoping, designing, um, these reporting tools and working with engineering teams to build it. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I feel kind of lucky that I got to, to work on those types of problems when I was there. Not everyone um, got to do that. And I and, you know, I think the job really delivered on all the promise. I had lots of fun. I remember I'd go to like a lot of cool meals I, at the time, you know, as as a 20 like early in my early 20s, I just thought it would be so cool to have a corporate card and how like how awesome would it be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pay for your flights. And so I was, you know, living the dream for myself. I was like, 
you know, really <laughs> living a glamorous lifestyle <laughs> from from my perspective back then. Yeah, um, I mean, it becomes almost like a an actual lifestyle from my friends who are consult- consultancy. I feel like is like a I call it almost like professional doc- doctors for professional companies. You almost have to di- yeah. diagnose and dissect and fix and and uh, and and I remember like a lot of times working in an incubator for startups when some of these guys would talk about consultants, they'd be like, "Ew, oh my god, no," uh, because like that that almost terminology sounded like taboo. Uh, when mm-hmm. reality, it, 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 it's definitely necessary for larger organizations. At some point, you got to figure out what's what's working, what's not. And internally, people don't figure it out. Um, yeah, it's hard to pull together a big team to focus on a specific temporary problem. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's when consultants can become really useful, where it's like, this isn't something we need staffed long term. It's something we need uh, to pull people with a specific skill set for. Um, and just focus on it until it's done, and then we can resume operations. Um, yeah, yeah so it was. It, I, I had a great experience, uh, much better than a lot of people I know who worked in consulting. Yeah, and then to be honest, though, it wasn't a satiating job. It was a great lifestyle. I learned a lot, but I didn't feel, um. You know, the fact that you work on a problem for a period of time and then you leave and you go work on something else, you don't have as much ownership. You don't have the same um, commitment and care that you do when you're full time at a company. Um, So I felt like I wanted to move on from that. Um, I was exposed to a lot of the business world through consulting, but I didn't know much about it. I had studied engineering. I was like very myopically focused on engineering when I was at school. And so that, in addition to wanting to, um, I think, live in another region in the country and do an exchange program and spend some time internationally, were, were, those were all pieces of the puzzle um, that, that sort of led me to go to get my MBA. Okay. Um, I don't... Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like you actually caught that uh, consciously at that age when a lot of people don't. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so you basically went to Duke, like you mentioned, right? And yeah. Duke's actually one of the top, uh, even though, granted, you know, the whole oh, Ivy League, Stanford, like Duke mm-hmm. is right there, in my opinion, um, with one of the top MBA schools. Yeah, um, it's just overlooked here a lot of times, unfortunately, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I I think it's um I think it's still pretty consistently ranked as a, a top 10 occasionally. It yeah. gets like a coveted top top 5 spot. There was one list I remember where it was ranked number 1 and I was like, hmm, probably not, but um <laughs> um but yeah, I mean for me I I I specifically wanted to get out of California and I I wanted mm-hmm. to go to a program that was really collaborative and didn't feel really cutthroat. And I thought there were certain programs that were, I guess, technically higher ranking um, that I thought I, I, I just thought I would be really unhappy at. Yeah. Um, How many classmates were, cause it, it depends. I know some schools are 200 and then there's like 900 um, or even now 1200. I, think. Um, I can't remember the class size anymore, but it was okay. kind of mid size. It was one of, it wasn't tiny like um, Dartmouth or Tuck mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't huge. Like, I think Harvard's is pretty huge. Yeah. Um, so it's mid-size and, and a really heavy uh, international 
um, student or percentage of students that were international. Um, and then a lot of us did, I did a, an exchange in Paris. And then before school, I went and lived in Brazil for a few months as well, which is sort of like, nice. And my, my deal with myself that um, I, I had wanted to go to an international program, but I wanted to stay in the US after school. So yeah, I was kind of conflicted on whether to go to a US school, which has better ties here or go to an international program. But I visited a bunch of schools in Europe, which was a fun trip regardless. But. I was going to say, like, regardless, <laughs> uh, I mean, you could do the abroad thing, but I have friends when you do MBA school, you're almost almost half the time traveling anyways. Uh, yeah. Or at least a third of the time you're traveling, and a good amount of that is primarily international. So with these, like, MBA school, like, travel trips, it's like, we're going to these countries to meet these companies, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, we did, yeah, it was. It's pretty cool. We were exposed to, and the amount of traveling I did. I mean, I accrued a lot of debt, but um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did get to see a lot of the world during that time, which was nice. You know, because I hadn't traveled internationally much until my twenties. I'd only gone to Brazil to see family, pretty much. Got it. Um, so it was, all of that was like really exciting to me. I wanted to see the world. Yeah. Uh, and then, so out of Duke, what happened next? Did you get into tech or did you do something yeah. before you got into product management? While I was at Duke, I was, um, I guess, interning or sort of like an associate for a venture capital fund out in oh, San cool. Francisco called Freestyle Capital. And so I, I worked for them during the summer. Um, and then... Um, and also, I mean, they're they're great guys, both the the partners who were um, MDs at the time um, or managing partners. They also uh, like let me do sort of an additional internship with one of our portfolio companies, and so that was a really cool experience. I met a ton of interesting people that I'm still in touch with now. I think it really. Mm-hmm helped get me a lot of exposure to what's what's out there. I mean, I even considered, I mean, this is such a Silicon Valley thing, but I considered dropping out and just <laughs> staying in the Valley for my, and not doing my second year. There's actually a, some article that was written about me and then a couple of other people who were considering dropping out or some people who did. Um, oh. And I ended up going back and finishing my my MBA. But, <laughs> but I considered <laughs> doing the very Silicon Valley thing of dropping out. Um, yeah. And, I'm surprised um, I didn't find that article online. Yeah, I can send it to you later. Um, it probably is not top ranking anymore. But um, yeah, so that was a consideration. And then, um, but I but I really worked with them for the summer and then throughout my second year. Then my, um, then after school, came back to San Francisco and joined Yelp. Um, and Sorry. Yelp. What was that? That's when we met, actually, too. Uh, yeah, that's I at, right. I was at Pebble, the smartwatch, and you were uh, in charge of the API platform for Yelp. Yeah, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, did you initiate that, or how, how did that? How did first of all, how did you get Yelp, and um, and then did you actually create the API platform for them? No, I didn't create it. Um, but I, I had a friend who worked at Yelp. Got it. Um, who went? Who'd gone? Who like? I knew through the business school network and he was on the business development team and I had reached out actually originally about a more junior role on the team. And 
throughout the process really liked Mike Kafari who, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you knew Mike and he actually, he introduced us, I think. Um, Correct, he, he went on to become CEO of E E24. Is that what? Yelp yes. Was? E24. Wasn't that the, uh, wasn't that part of Yelp? I believe they bought yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like yeah, part of Yelp. Yeah. Yeah, it was an acquired platform, and then he um, became the CEO of that. Yeah, um, but anyway, I, I they um, kind of pulled me into this um, more senior role, which was heading up um, the platform, and so I was both the business development lead and the uh, product lead for the Yelp API. To be honest, there weren't there weren't many folks tasked to work on that. And so it wasn't a well-staffed area of the business. Um, it was a cool, it was a cool role. I got to meet, you know, people like you, um, and, um, work with folks who were integrating the Yelp API. Um, but I think for me at the time really was drawn to more squarely being in a product role. Yeah. So I ended up, uh, leaving to go to Amazon and at Amazon, I worked on a payments product for a bit before joining Prime Now, which was at the time wow, cool. sort of bleeding edge of fast delivery. It was one to two hour delivery um, just before it was cool, sort of. Um, and um, it was a really fast moving, interesting project to work on. I, I ran third party merchant uh, expansion. So basically any of the small businesses that use Amazon to be on prime. Yeah. They, uh, to be on prime now, which was the fast Got delivery it. offering and uh, which is now basically displaced by whole foods delivery at the time, Amazon hadn't yet acquired them. And, right. uh, yeah. and then I also ran alcohol for the prime now portion of business. Oh, so, um, yeah. And so that was, that was, a really interesting time. I learned a lot. It was, I, I, I went to Amazon knowing it probably wouldn't be the culture for me long-term. It's, it's very distinct. It's very interesting. You can't argue with their success, but it's a little, a little more aggressive than I, <laughs> of an environment that I prefer. Yeah. Um, I've heard they're very like, I mean, you're very shrewd. You keep you're busy nonstop. You, you it's almost like quarter by quarter yeah. basis. How intense, however, but you learn a lot more than other places that you typically do in Silicon Valley, which is more like you said. It almost feels more like strategic, lab oriented. You know, let's let's figure this out. Yeah. Since they execute a lot of the projects they test out, uh, which is incredible. Um, I get two quick questions or things I wanted to bring up. One is uh, uh, for those who are not aware, can you explain what an API, an API product, like like for like yeah. Yelp, for example, you were working on Yelp. What does mm -hmm. that mean? Because I know uh, it, it, we're in Silicon Valley and tech, but those who aren't, maybe they're just like the simple terms. Sure, yeah. And then, and then two, if you have any like, there's always like every one of my friends at Amazon have an interesting fun and horror story. So before we go to the Amazon one, do you want to explain like what APIs are and uh, so an API that stands for application programming interface. So basically um, 
it's a way for a company like, say, Yelp to open up some of their data to external developers. Um, so for instance, Pebble, where Chaubert used to work, they were able to pull in Yelp content into their app using our API. Basically, it's like a, a hose where you can like, you know, capture data coming straight from Yelp. And so, yeah, um, yeah a, a lot of large tech companies have open APIs. Um, I think Uber probably does. Anyway, but uh, most of the tech companies out there have some, some form of um, an API that allows for an ecosystem of developers to exist using that company's data. Yeah, so th that's a great point. When I was at Pebble, uh, we we could have from scratch tried to create like a data set, an ecosystem of like trying to find local restaurants and things and, and display them on the watch, the smartwatch. But why would we when we could just use Yelp's information, which has the, the probably the best encompassing one uh, with regards to the local and specifically restaurant. Um, like we did a fun little thing where we could flick the risk and find the closest restaurants that you yeah. can see. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of fun. And speaking of the Uber API, I don't know if this is actually a true story, but we technically hacked into Uber and created an Uber app on the watch. They did not like it, but that <laughs> led, that led Uber to create the API solution. For oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I don't, again, I, I, it's a fun fact. I have to kind of check in with some of my friends who work at Uber if it's it's actual real or not. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it, it's an it's an inevitability where uh, Uber was going to have to create a, an external API at some point. Like, what's what's interesting about APIs is it's mutually beneficial. So the developer gets effectively free data that makes yeah. their prod product stronger. And then um, the Uber or the Yelp gets the benefit of links back to their product um, and more brand awareness. And so it it's sort of um, a model that works and is pretty common. But that's funny that you guys might have been the impetus for Uber creating it. Yeah, it's a little fun nugget I tell people. <laughs> um, and then do you have any... Uh, technically, I don't Those know. Stories. You your yeah, you're signing your life away or not, but like, do you have any fun or horror stories that you from Amazon? About? Yeah, about the the Prime now. I can imagine early days, and if it's if you yeah, can, it was wild. I, yeah, I, I can't remem remember a ton. What what I mean, one memory I do have is that there was this. Um, I mean, so it is a grind, but uh, this article came out, this scathing article about. <laughs> about Amazon's work culture came out while I worked there. And I see every, I mean, it was just the talk of the entire company and everyone's like, well, I don't disagree. Is you know, talking about people crying at their desks and the work and the grind and all this stuff. And it, it was, um, yeah, it wasn't untrue. I think it's not universally true. There's organizations there that are, more uh, chill. And then there are some that are pretty high burn. I was in one that at the time was pretty high burn. It was a, a Bezos project. And so, you know, pretty, pretty quick moving. I can't remember, you know, it was now quite a while ago. I don't remember a ton, a ton about what, what we're doing. I, I mean, it, it was sort of funny that like no one wanted to partner with us because every third party merchant thought Amazon was going to steal. Oh, yeah. 
And then Amazon bought Whole Foods. So I I don't know, perhaps there was some truth to that. (laughs) There, uh, I think the Amazon, uh, so there, there is this thing that, uh, correct the notion that, oh, that platform, that company is taking over small and mid-sized businesses. And, And there is some fact to it, but in reality, if you actually look in the fine print of what the products you're looking at, a lot of which are actually coming from small businesses on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Now you could kind of argue that they they wouldn't be able to do that, and so they they're kind of engulfing themselves. But in, I think a lot of small businesses, if it wasn't for them, Amazon would not be Amazon right now. Yeah. Um, so and then okay, so you went from like Yelp, Amazon, from like like APIs, <laughs> direct product to consumer, and then you use that skill sets to like ease, which is really a fascinating story actually. Um, yeah. So can you explain to everybody what Ease is um, and then when you got about to become, I think you were the VP or head of Ease's VP, platform. VP product, yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll give you, I'll, I'll remind a little bit. So when I was yeah. at Amazon, I was advising a friend's company that was in the cannabis space, smaller company, um, bootstraps, and or I guess small, small investment. Um, but helping her... Um, my friend who founded that company with her product got me thinking about the cannabis industry. And I thought, you know, gosh, um, every punk song, every rap song I listened to growing up alluded to the legalization of of (laughs) cannabis. And I never thought I'd see it happen in the US during my lifetime. And so to see sentiment shift so drastically across all religious and political affiliations was really exciting and really energizing for me. And I thought, gosh, this is, this is snowballing. This is a social movement. This is bigger than just cannabis. Um, and you know, I thought back to the the war on drugs and all the sort of Mm. damage that was caused by that. And I, I felt this movement was on the right side of history and, and also was definitely not going to be boring. And so I thought, um, you know, I wouldn't, forgive myself if I wasn't a part of it. And so I, I just look for the strongest team in the space that was working on cannabis. And I, I had wanted to relocate back to the Bay Area um, I, I, during, I, I don't think I mentioned, but during my time at Amazon, I was up in Seattle. Um, and so I, I found Ease, really liked what the team had built at the time, though it was kind of a proof of concept product. It, you know, you could I think you could only, maybe only order one item at a time. There was no credit card processing. There was no, I don't think you could order multiple of anything. It was really bare bones. Wow. Um, and uh, the team was 20 something people. Um, but there, there was promise there, right? Even though the product was pretty, um, pretty scrappy, it was growing very quickly. And it was mm-hmm. clear that there was, um, already some product market fit because there was so much friction in using the product that that people had to be pretty resilient <laughs> um, in order to become easy customers and they were still doing it. And so, you know, I thought, well, we we know how to fix that. We can make I can make the product better. And so if the product gets better, then of course um, growth will follow. And so um, I joined the team, initially joined to lead uh, product management, um, and then very quickly, I think two months in, got promoted to VP product over 
product design, um, product marketing, uh, UX, UX research. So, uh, and then kind of played a dotted line leadership role to engineering as well. Um, wow. That's an incredible role. You basically uh, design, <laughs> layout, the management side, uh, connecting with engineers. You pretty much could, all, you, you, you could say you were the decision maker of all the, the usability on how do you get uh, basically cannabis from ease. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a pretty big role. It was um, definitely a shift from Amazon and things just move so much more quickly in a startup and there's not, not all this red tape and um, it was pretty exciting, you know, and I, you know, felt some amount of imposter syndrome, I think at the beginning of that role and okay. felt, you know, not ready to take that on <laughs> at the time. And I think after I, you know, I, after I made my first hire, who's amazing, um, and then kind of like got on a roll on that side of things and started shipping product, I, I started to feel like, oh, okay, I can do this. It's, it's not, 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 not as hard as I thought, but yeah. um, there was a period where it was, it was very challenging for me. It was a really um, big shift. <laughs> Imposter syndrome is actually a good way of saying it. I mean, you could also, uh, because you could almost feel like this is overbearing, overwhelming, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. But, you, but from what you're just saying, it's more like, you know, this is like a massive shift from what you're used to in a big corporate structure job to, wow, you know, a lot on your plate. Let me, and then, they, you know, the cliche is looking about like hire smart people so you could allocate and collab and move really fast. I got to actually, uh, speaking of product, I do have a product question and thought process because, you know, with ease, I saw this. And so when I was in, I've been in mobile primarily outside of my Pebble days, I've been in mobile games and ad tech and applications. And b back when I was this company, Addiction, we did a lot of app distribution, app creation from uh, photo sharing apps, game publishing, and like uh, a distribution app. And one of the key things we discussed was this notion of either, I think it was seven or nine, uh, where a human brain can only take seven things or nine things. I think it was actually seven, where mm -hmm. uh, like if at that time you joined Pinterest, on iOS, it was so seamless, so clean. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a social network that was popping up and like you wanted to be part of it if you wanted to ha have like pins and collections. And so that was something I would refer to people. Uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Because like if you go on like really some of the best products out there, like a, an Instagram or an Uber, like we were discussing Uber earlier, you know, if you go on Uber, you're probably doing two to three, maximum five. Uh, mm -hmm. things. So for ease, I'm assuming, you know, it had to be somewhere where it was so seamless, uh, that anybody could, you know, get cannabis. Yeah. Uh, how do you keep it to that level? And was seven the number? I'm trying to remember that. I thought I asked you I don't remember what the number is, but I, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I think really you want to reduce the cognitive load on your, on the consumer, on the user. And so, yeah. um, in cannabis, there are certain things that are just harder, right? Like there's some form of a learning curve. Not everyone's super familiar with your, um, your the type of like the category of products or have some um, exposure from when they were young, but the world of cannabis has kind of changed. Um, we also, at the time that I joined, it was a medical market. And so we had 
the requirement of uh, folks had to video chat with a doctor in order to use to shop on ease, which is, you know, a pretty high point of friction for them. And we like really so much of what we did there was sort of focus the design, focus the experience, make it as seamless and as simple as possible with the caveat that some of it had to be more complex by the nature of our, our business. Um, and so, you know, I, I am quite proud of how we did that and um, how how simplified the experience was able to get. And, you know, we handled a lot more complexity on the back end and whenever we could protect our end consumers or, or users from um, from that cognitive load uh, for that from that complexity, we we would we'd try to like handle the complexity on our own and not let them worry about uh, about that. And, and, you know, also built in. um or really tried to destigmatize the industry through our product design. We had a lot of poppy colors, really um, simplified, friendly uh, product experience. And that was all super intentional because at the time, everything in the space was like very much appealing to stoner culture, right? It was like, thank <laughs> yeah. God for... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... But the general masses is really what you want to go after, especially for Mm -hmm. a product like Ease, um, because uh, the stoner culture, they have access to, besides Ease, other channels, right? Um, For the general master, like thinking, what's the easiest way I could get it? I kind of just want something light today. What does that mean? And again, Mm -hmm. like the product has to be really simple. It's like, do I want... You know, do I want to have a uh, cannabis to smoke or do I want some edibles and so on and so forth? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah to appeal to, you know, we try to be a product where if you sent your mom or your grandma to it, they'd one, be able to figure out how to use it and two, um, not feel gross about the experience. You know, they'd feel like they were taken care of, that was secure, they weren't doing something so taboo. Um and so, yeah, that was very much intentional in how we how we designed Ease. Now, and now Ease has some is able to take a little bit more liberties and um, kind of appealing back to um, stoner culture because the industry is now more destigmatized, right? Correct. Um, so that uh, kind of gives a little bit more openness. And and, and it's uh, state by state levels, you know, yeah. being approved and. And, you know, and it's, so it's technically giving back to economies, uh, local economies. So, yeah, totally. it's uh, definitely it's, fascinating um, that you yeah. say. Reminds- yeah, yeah, I know. I was going to like, it reminds me of like the, the rap and like you said, the rock to, to a certain extent growing up here in California, growing that was part of the theme and the culture <laughs> um, that, you know, and now it's, it's uh, embedded. Which is, it's quite fascinating. I know. Uh, the psychedelic movement is following. <laughs> which movement? The psychedelic movement. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. that, that's on a whole other level for sure. Which, <laughs> I mean, I'm excited about. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in the camp of legalize everything. but <laughs> That one, I think, uh, I mean, man, even we to this point, to this day, I think is still struggling. You can see there's push and pull with some of the classic conservatives. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, if you can legalize everything, it definitely, and, and you're speaking of like the cartels and everything, that's a whole different discussion points. Um, yeah, 
you can reinvest in um, education and rehabilitation and not spend so much sort of uh, government money regulating it. I mean, it's also like um, there's there's tax benefits to, you know, California, like they're getting a bunch of money from cannabis sales now. So there's all kinds of reasons to to legalize things and then have more visibility and more protection of folks who are or using things. And also now you're seeing psychedelics, psychedelics and cannabis being much more heavily researched for um, treatment of anxiety, depression, mm. um, much more serious medical conditions. So it's, um, I think, net positive. That doesn't mean there aren't ways to abuse these things. Yes. Um, but I'm, we see that on a day-to-day level anyways, if you walk the streets of California, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, and that's a whole different discussion we could get into. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What what I know with uh, the time we have remaining, I thought uh, it'd be cool to talk about you know, what you're getting into, which is uh, a lot of people are now, which is Web three and the NFT world. Um, you know, if you're able to talk about, because I know a lot of it is hush hush, yeah. but uh, would love to pick your brain. Like, what what is like Web three and the NFT world, and what are you, what are you looking at that's ex- exciting you there? So. It, Web3 is really interesting. So I've been on the periphery for, I guess, years now. I bought into cryptocurrencies, you know, a few years ago and um, have been watching the space and uh, maybe within the last year or so have gone deeper. NFTs, I find super interesting, much more interesting than I thought I would when I first heard about them, right? Because I think NFT space gets a lot of flack because there is a sort of right-click save joke that like, okay, you're paying thousands of dollars or sometimes millions of dollars for an image um, that you could just save and have. Um, but it's, I am seeing that it's so much more than that. The the proof of ownership and access to communities and access to other um, um I guess other communities through ownership of uh, of certain NFTs is really interesting, and I think it'll become more and more impactful in culture. I think the the version of NFTs that exist today or that are popular today are may not be what NFTs look like in the future. Yeah. Um, but I like that it's bringing in so much creative energy. I haven't seen this sort of unification of of like tech thinkers and super creative artists, maybe ever. I mean, it's it's really it's the first awesome time I'm seeing it too. Yeah, it and it it does have early web energy, and um, and I just see so much um, sort of invention that's happening in the space. It's it's also interesting because it's definitely a step back in terms of the user experience if you're if you're web3 it's like the wallets and you're paying transaction fees and there's a whole bunch of things that are really hard um yeah. and you need yeah. a learning curve I, it does remind me a bit of early days of cannabis as well where um well clearly there's some sort of product market fit there because mm-hmm. even though there are all these challenges people are still enduring them to be a part of it um, to yeah. be part of this. Uh, um, you, you, you definitely <laughs> brought up, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, no, I was going to say, and so 
I'm working on a number of projects in part because um, I think I'd like to bring more um, artists into the NFT space and Web3 and kind of help That's them better exciting. understand. Yeah. So um, three, two of the projects are with folks who have never done anything in NFTs. And then one of the people who I'm, I'm working with a lot, he's an artist. He's going to launch a collection um, with me pretty soon as well. Um, and then I'm working on some DeFi gaming things. And a lot of it is also... It's not just I, that I see a financial opportunity. It's, it's that I I want to learn more about these things, and the best way to do it is to to work on them. And so um, that's that's just kind of what I'm doing. I think uh, I, I don't know if I'll end up doing committing to an existing company full time, um, but right now I'm in a pretty exploratory uh, entrepreneurial um, sort of space. And and just learning a ton. It's just it's really energizing and fun. There's just more and more new people that are kind of getting welcomed in. So yeah, no, that's exciting. Uh, Look, I have a friend who is an award-winning 3D animation uh, artist, basically, and uh, he works. He's he's been working like major uh, Fortune 500 companies, and he has, as every artist does, side hustles, but have never been able to get them out there. It's just never been a platform, even to a certain extent I've had friends who are artists on Instagram make a living off that, but it's nowhere mm-hmm. near the, the, the stuff they can do with their original IP on, on this uh, NFT space. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, gosh, I mean, the only thing I could think of in the last 10 years was like, I have a friend who used to have an iPhone an iPad. Uh, he used to call it an iPad art show which I'm surprised no one has really taken advantage of stuff like that, where you could use the accelerometer and the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the access of the device and you could play around with it and, and make it into an artist exhibit. Um, and, and I think I, I wasn't able to go this year, but I saw in the videos on Art Basel, this was literally the first time Art Basel had more interactive products than ever before, yeah. uh, which is pretty cool. So for those, uh, I just quickly like kind of recap those who don't know, NFT is basically non-fungible tokens that using digital currencies to help support products that you're interested in, which right now the vertical that's really doing well is art. It's really the notion of uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies to decentralize, which is allowing anybody who has a skill set do well. Um, and, and and it's starting to see the, the fruits of this after all these years of like tokens talking about what what are we going to do with them? Yeah, like uh, you know these these products, all right? But yes, it's super early days. It reminds me a lot. I was talking to my friend recently that oh, you back when I was this is dating me, I'd go try to buy some products on eBay in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, and you try to buy it with PayPal, and that was a different. You had to hop off, go on PayPal, <laughs> buy it back on eBay, and you'd hope the product was shipped to your house, and there wasn't fraudulent activity. So there are, you know, the same thing happened, like. I, for the first time, bought myself an NFT recently. I bought a Roboto. I got excited oh. with the project. You know, like I thought what pa- Pablo Stanley's doing is very interesting, uh, creating a- an animation world with an animation cartoon show on um, a studio in LA. Uh, I was like, okay, to me, this is realistic. I'm going to support this. But it was daunting. I, I tried before buying some products. It was, it was really hard to go, 
you know, allocate some crypto, you know, put it into like a wallet and buy. So I can imagine as a product person like yourself, you're, you're trying to solve this for artists or give them like a quick crash course. You're like, let me take care of this uh, for you. So it's, it, it is, there's a lot. And there's an argument between like Jack Dorsey has um, with the VCs like Mark Andreessen where like, you know, it should be completely decentralized where in reality, there's still some structures that have to be there like a structure, like yeah. an open scene to others. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's wrote an interesting post on that recently. Oh, his article was incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I agree with him, but also see promise in the space. I mean, but he also says he sees promise in the space or that it's not, it's not going anywhere despite the challenges. Um, but Correct. yeah, there are tough parts of, um, of everything being fully decentralized, which is which is not the current reality. Um, there's there's still some centralization. I think that will need to be the case. Um, yeah, but, but it's exciting you, times, like you, you said. You need money because your MetaMask wallet had a bug, and you know you accidentally a, a, a payment a transaction went through that you didn't mean to go through. This actually happened to me. Um, you've got no one to really. Well, I guess you can complain to MetaMask support. There is a core team working on it, but it's it's harder in a decentralized environment to Correct. figure out like, okay, well, who solves my problems then? <laughs> who do I complain to um, when I have an issue? Um, so you're like, at least right now, fending for yourself out there a bit more. Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's a little daunting, especially the fact that how much money you are putting through these wallets to go and buy a product, right? Um, so you're, you just have to understand the risk that's involved both personally and with like whomever else you're working with, but the excitement is there. Um, there's real business to be done and I, I definitely see this the future now. It's much, much more compelling to me than it was several years ago when people were just talking about it. And I just felt like there was nothing pegged to cryptocurrencies at all. Yeah. Now uh, there's, although, now I started thinking, I, I think in ETH. Sometimes, not all the time, but wow. it's kind of like it, it puts everything I, all the things I'm cheap about in the real world in perspective where I'm like, well, I'm going to not order takeout, but I just spent, you know, thousands of dollars on an MT without flinching. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like wow. <laughs> whatever it is. Um, but yeah, the, the amount of money you end up spending if you <laughs> go into space, uh, is is kind of wild although at least right now while while nfts um are garnering a lot of attention so far yeah it's it's my my money is has performed well but um you know we'll see how it all unfolds yeah i think the real key for people to understand is like the younger generation this is something you know they're, this is what they're going to play with like digital currencies and it could be in games it could be in app stores, um, which is realistic in the last 10 to 20 years. But now it's realistic on the decentralized networks. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting for the day where the idea, because people talk about this, where you could barter products or sell, buy and sell products between set networks is fascinating to me. Um, I think that's really decentralization. Yeah. But, uh, again, that's what Moxie's argument is about. I, uh, with time purposes, I just uh, thought... Uh, you know, what's your thoughts, uh, what, what's your excitement for besides like what you're doing now with this year uh, and, you know, long term? Like, what do you what do you want to do? Like, what do you what excites you in the world? You know, 
I think that my professional goals in some ways were met by my experience at ease where I felt really good about what I accomplished there, what the team I built, um, you know, what we, what we did. And so that's given me a lot more free reign to not be super goal oriented in, in my professional endeavors now. So it's a lot more about, you know, I want to do work on things that I'm passionate about, excited about that I think, uh, you know, are aligned with my values. Um, and so, yeah, you know, a a lot of people have asked me if I'm going to start a company. I said, no, if in effect right now I did start a NFT studio, but it's, you know, (laughs) it's different than starting a a venture back business. Um, so it reminds me of IDEO. I mean, look, you don't have to, you're yeah. almost, you could almost picture it as like an ID, like a creation studio to an incubator for projects, which eventually could be something. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it doesn't have to have that glory as a startup, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I don't particularly want to be, uh, you know, founder of a venture back startup. I think it's just like a lot of investor pressure, a lot of, you just can't, I think it's hard to live a really balanced happy life that way. And that's important to me. That's good good that you recognize that actually. Yeah. 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 I don't need the, um, the glitz and the glory necessarily. I just, I want to, you know, live a good life, work on cool, interesting stuff with good people. And that's, that's kind of where I prioritize, you know, my work. (laughs) That's awesome. And if, um, if you have any other things to, you know, mention happy to share now uh but hey this has been a great uh podcast i'm excited thanks so much uh natasha for coming on and being one of my first guests can't wait to uh uh hear what people think and yeah thanks again awesome thanks yeah i don't really have anything else to mention if anyone's interested in um upcoming nft projects or um i guess whatever else i work on um I'm at npecor, N-P-E-C-O-R, on, on Twitter. I just recently started tweeting again. I, I was wow. I Twitter for <laughs> years. Um, <laughs> and Web3 is actually just sort of fun. So I, so I started speaking up on there a little more. Yeah, Nothing. Twitter is definitely exploded with the NFT space. The other is, uh, um, why am I blanking out? Um, what's the chat app that everybody's using? Um, oh, Discord. Discord. Yeah. 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 Discord's interesting. It's the most metaverse <laughs> kind of experience I've had, which I wouldn't think because it seems very it, like it should be very similar to Slack. But when you get on Discord into these different communities, most people have um, an NFT or an image as their um, as their avatar. They're using different names it's sort of like this alternate reality. So true. <laughs> in, in discord. It's kind of interesting. And I, honestly, like I, I thought being in there, I was like, and this actually reminds me of AIM. was Pseudonymous or didn't, didn't use their real names back then. Um, and it's sort of treated like it's novel as a concept now, but that's been, that's existed in uh, technology culture for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see 
how that evolves. I mean, they have definitely uh, done well pivoting and piggybacking like the gaming sector and chats and to now this NFT world and the anonymous culture. You're definitely absolutely right with the whole notion that you're this, you are this meta character um, living through it. So yeah, gauging people is definitely fascinating. I, I barely use it, but it's fascinating just to see what's happening there. Um, yeah, well, thank you again so much, uh, Natasha. And, and it's great to hear your story. And um, yeah, look to ha- uh, stay in touch and have a great uh, evening. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Shamir. Um, all right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Yeah.